0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, I'm Matt Chorley. This is Politics Without the Boring Bits coming up on today's episode. Are you ready for President Trump, the sequel? We take a look at what the results from the Iowa caucuses means for the race for the White House. And what does it mean for Britain's transatlantic relationship? We'll also bring you a taster of this week's How to Win an Election podcast too. And don't forget, you can get in touch with me at any time. Just email matt at times.radio with your complaints or questions or grievances or just comments about my face on the new logo. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me for Politics about the Boring Bits on Times Radio. Listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's politics without the boring bits. Weekdays from 10 on Times Radio. Now, the problem with sequels is they're never quite as good as the original. Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, Home Sweet Home Alone, genuinely one of the worst films I've ever seen, Dumb and -er. Dumberer.
2: Speaking of which... And I really think this is time now for everybody our country to come together.
1: We want to come together. Yeah, come together. Uh, As if... Yeah, he's back. And this time, he means business. We'll look at what President Trump the sequel looks like a bit later. But he's not the only one in the mood for a return to the good old days. (music) Boris Johnson has got his eye on the door of number 10 again. Apparently, he's put in a bid for the Downing Street door that they've used on the crown, according to The Sun. There's an auction going on right now for props. Clearly, Boris Johnson hoping to recreate past glories, giving victory speeches, shaking the hands of the great and the good and banging on the door late at night when Carrie's locked him out. In fact, talking talking of bad sequels, Rwanda is back. Hurrah, says a grateful nation. What do we want? More amendments. Said nobody. At Rwanda, the Rwanda bill, very much the police academy mission to Moscow of Commons rebellions. Uh, I would say, although Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Tory Party, who is threatening to oppose the government and back some of the amendments, despite being part of the Tory leadership, he insists that's totally normal. Well, it's not. This is not a rebellion, Patrick. This is this, this is about uh, making sure that the bill is beefed up a little bit. So there you have it. The Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party threatening to vote against the government that he's supposed to be the spokesman of is not a rebellion. And now, as we always do on a Tuesday, a little taster of this week's edition of the How to Win an Election podcast with Peter Madison, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie. Today, we were taking a look at how to win a by-election. Polly, they're a big... Uh, the Lib Dems love them, don't they?
0: Well, what's great about by-elections is they're massively different uh, sort of contests than a general election. Because the one obvious thing is that the future of the country is not at stake, which means you get a number of things. One, you tend to get much lower turnout. Um, You also can get much bigger swings. um, And you can shift the political kind of mood in a place because it's so concentrated and people can safely sort of send a message to the government. Mm. And so whether it is about a local thing, you know, which might be some... Uh, there's a field that somebody wants to build some houses on, which you can sort of turn into a into a, into a a big issue, or whether it's uh, the Iraq war or a particular terrorism vote or uh, getting police on our streets, you can just turn it into a sort of single-issue referendum on whether the government's any good.
3: My um, view of this I call it stress Actual elections are... And, like, local elections, actually, are important because they are about how people locally are governed or represented, so they're very important in themselves. But as indicators of national opinion, while they give you a taste of it, they're nowhere near as good as an opinion poll. I mean, you would never conduct an opinion poll by saying we're going to concentrate on one constituency, let everyone do an unfeasibly large amount of voter contact, um, pose them a completely different question, which is who do you want your MP to be your MP, rather than simply the question of who do go- who's you want to be Prime Minister, which is a different question. Um, and... Um, Organise it at a completely different time to everything else. You'd get a terrible result, which is what you do. So, <laughs> so I don't think... Bio- we, we take them incredibly seriously and we think they're important. They're important in themselves. They're national elections that are worthy of covering because a Member of Parliament is important. But as indicators of national opinion except in the crudest way, you know, but if the crude way these by-elections are, the crude piece of information these by-elections I can exclusively reveal are going to, uh, and on our podcast is going to, uh, tell us is the Tories aren't doing very well, which we already <laughs> know.
4: Yeah, they may not be scientific, Danny, but they do They do create momentum, and they do have an... Give a me some examples. They do except-
3: have... Darlington. Darlington, where Ozzie O'Brien beat Tony Cook uh, just near to the election, which may have stopped the SDP going past Labour in 1983. Uh, Just because it had come after, I think, the grand... one other... By, maybe no, Greenwich
4: no, no, by. no. It, it de- so, Bermondsey was before it, which yeah, yeah. was a big nail in Michael Foot's coffin. Uh, and Greenwich uh, was in February 1987. Yeah, later later. Uh, later. Where so was that Bermondsey. really stymied so Labour's momentum. momentum give me an going example. Going into
3: the general election in, in uh, that year. These don't affect the the big results because very few things really do. And I just think the impact of some by-election. I'm,
4: I'm not saying that the Labour would have won the general election of 1987 had it not been for Greenwich that, that February. But i tell you what it did. Uh, we were unfortunately faced with a selection of a, quote, hard left, quotes loony left candidate, uh, Deirdre Wood, who was a great sort of living stone person. And... Kinnock's whole appeal that he had been created was that he had defeated the hard left, defeated Mil- Militant, he'd turned around the Labour Party, and there was, this, <laughs> pops up, Deirdre Wood. And I remember what Neil said to me. He said, I'm afraid it's Deirdre, uh, Pete, do-, do what you can.
1: And if you want to hear the full episode of How to Win an Election, just search for How to Win an Election, wherever you're listening to this. Up next, are you ready for President Trump, the sequel? Donald Trump has completed his first step on the road back to the White House, and it could barely have been more convincing. The former president won the Iowa caucuses with fifty-one percent of the vote, more than thirty points ahead of Ron DeSantis in second place, obliterating the previous record for the largest margin of error in the uh, sorry, the largest margin of victory in the caucus. Uh, when Bob Dole won by 12.8 percentage points back in 1988. In his victory speech, Donald Trump called on the country to come together.
2: And I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or Liberal or Conservative. It would be so nice if we could... Come together and straighten out the world, and straighten out the problems, and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing. That's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important, and I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. It's going to happen soon too. It's going to happen soon.
1: Well, Joe Biden wrote on X that Trump is now the clear front runner in a sign that he's giving up. For a rematch of 2020's election, we are getting in the mood for sequels. Well, Donald Trump called Biden corrupt and accused him of electoral interference.
2: So I don't want to be overly uh, rough on the president. But I have to say that he is the worst president that we've had in the history of our country. He's destroying our country.
1: So, today we want to take a look at what this uh, outcome in Iowa means for the race of the White House, but also how Britain might respond. Let's go live to Iowa now. Uh, James Johnson is our weatherman there. James, how are you?
5: I'm very well, thanks. No video this time, Matt, I'm afraid, as it's 5 a.m. And uh, I'm afraid I've not braved the outside for you this time.
1: Well, we appreciate you getting up uh, this early. Take us through, then, uh, what happened overnight. Uh, You know, we've had, what, two impeachments, the attack on the U.S. Capitol... 91 criminal charges for trying to overturn the 2020 election, retaining classified documents after leaving the White House, falsifying records connected to hush money payments to a porn star. And yet, Donald Trump is more popular than ever with Republican voters. Explain that for us. Uh,
5: absolutely. And, and the reason is, is that those things that you've just listed have just kept emboldening his support and the reason why is that people think uh, that people are pursuing uh, uh Donald Trump they're trying to get get him out of politics um uh, as one person said to me in Georgia a couple of months ago um a swing voter uh said to me uh, Donald Trump um is uh you know trying to um wh- why why are they so desperate to get rid of Donald Trump why you know why are they so scared of him And I've heard that again and again, that sentiment. And they think that the Democrats are scared of him and they think they're scared of him because he's strong. And uh, they like that because they want this strong Donald Trump to shake things up uh, and to right the country from its current course. So, you know, those things have only emboldened Donald Trump rather than rather than hurt him. And that's one of the reasons he managed to deliver such a good result here tonight.
1: So, well ahead uh, of his uh, rivals, let's take a look at some of those to see where they now stand. Is there any path for them to, to beat him to the nomination? Ron DeSantis came in second place and took the opportunity to have a dig at his doubters in the media. They were just so excited about the fact that they were predicting uh, that we wouldn't be able uh, to get our ticket punched here out of Iowa. But I can tell you, because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. He's got his ticket punched. I mean, he's quite a long way behind uh, behind James. Uh, then uh, we've got Nikki Haley, who he managed to beat into third place. She continues to present herself as the most electable of all the Republican candidates.
6: Trump and Biden both lack a vision for our country's future because both are consumed by the past, by investigations, by vendettas, by grievances. America deserves better.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So to be clear, she got 19.1% in Iowa. Ron DeSantis, 21.2%. And Donald Trump with 51%. Uh, We should, I suppose, let's just, because for the last time probably, uh, mention the biotech entrepreneur uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. He made a big splash in some of the TV debates. He's now pulled out of the race endorsing Trump. As I've said since the beginning, there are two America First candidates in this race. And earlier tonight, I called Donald Trump to tell him that I... Congratulate him on his victory and now going forward he will have my full endorsement for the presidency and i think we're going to do the right thing for this country um so, so james who's got the best chance now do you think i mean does any you know the, the race uh, rolls on to to other states um what impact does Ramaswamy dropping out have And is there anyone who could, you know, bring together the supporters of Haley, the uh, supporters of DeSantis, the the supporters of Ramaswamy to sort of combine them into something able to beat Trump?
5: Well, listening to those Haley and DeSantis clips there, it feels slightly like they were the versions of their speeches that they'd have delivered if they'd have come within 10 points or so of Donald Trump. Of course, uh, they were both 30 points behind him. Uh, This is about as good a result as Donald Trump could have hoped for, because it's not clear who can now take on Donald Trump. And the longer that Haley and DeSantis are both in the race, uh, the more um, that allows Trump to keep cleaning up delegates. Uh, As we get further into the contest, more of these contests become winner takes all. And what that means is, is that the delegates who get sent to the convention in in the summer to pick the nominee Um, uh, at the moment they're allocated proportionally so you know uh, Trump would have got a majority of uh, you know 50 50 percent or so of the delegates last night DeSantis would have got a fifth Haley would have got a fifth but when we get a bit further in anyone who wins the primary uh, gets all of the delegates so you know Trump will be able to mop up um, a lot more the more that the, the field is split one caveat though is Nikki Haley um the timing of the primary schedule means that literally only next, only a week today, uh, next Tuesday, we'll be in New Hampshire for the next contest. And that is the race in which Nikki Haley has the best chance. And the reason is, is that independents vote in large numbers in New Hampshire. New Hampshire's electorate could potentially be almost as much as half Uh, made up of independents next Tuesday. Just explain what that Um, means, James.
1: That's people who aren't fully signed up members of the Republican Party, but they are able to take part in this process of voting for the candidate.
5: Exactly. So they can turn up on the day um, and uh, they can choose a Republican ballot um, without needing to change their party registration or anything like that. So it's a lower bar than it was in Iowa. Um, And uh, that helps Nikki Haley because a lot of her support is made up of independents. So, you know, you really could see, despite the great result for Trump tonight, you could see Nikki Haley springing an upset next week. The thing is, though, Matt, is that the rest of the primary season looks more like Iowa than it does New Hampshire. Mm. So, I'm not sure that even if she does manage to spring that surprise next week, it's going to last for that
1: long. So, finally, James, um, we've talked a lot, a lot about this uh, before when we were doing the monthly focus groups and you gave advice to Keir Starmer, which she said, if you've got Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis in a room, what advice would you give them on the, which one of them should pull out, what position they should take? Is there any route to uh, beating Donald Trump?
5: My strong view throughout has been that Ron DeSantis is the best person uh, to take on Donald Trump. And the reason is, is that uh, Trump, uh, DeSantis can speak to some of the Trump supporters um, as well as those who don't much like him, whereas Haley appeals to really only the anti-Trump part of the Republican Party. Um, If we get to a 1v1 race, Trump versus DeSantis, by Super Tuesday, uh, which is the day where 16 states vote, so by far the biggest delegate hall available in early March, then there could be something interesting on on, on the way. But I can't see that happening. So what would I say to them? I think I'd say, you know, look, guys, Trump's not going to offer you a job. Um, One of you needs to drop out uh, and it's probably Nikki Haley who needs to go.
1: James, thanks very much for that. Thanks so much for that. I'll let you get back to sleep. Uh, sir James Johnson from JL Partners joining us live from Iowa. Uh, he'll be back taking a look at British politics uh, next month with our Monthly Times radio focus group. Uh, while we were just talking, someone's been in touch, Nick, to flag a graphic uh, saying if you're tempted to draw sweeping conclusions of what happens in Iowa, uh, pointing out that in 2016, Iowa was won by Ted Cruz. In 2012, it was won by Rick Santorum and in 2008 by Mick Huckabee. Uh, Those three men all having something in common, they didn't go on to uh, become president. Well, Donald Trump clearly the uh, clear favourite now to challenge Joe Biden for the presidency on the 5th of November. So let's take a look now what that means for the UK and the so-called special relationship. We asked uh, our friends at YouGov to ask British voters... Well, they thought about the prospect. 56% of people prefer the idea of Joe Biden being elected. Just 18% favouring Donald Trump. Conservative 2019 voters, leavers and men much more enthusiastic about uh, Donald Trump with more than a a quarter of them. Uh, backing uh, the Republican, interestingly, and it's you know only a poll and margin of error and all of that, but younger people marginally uh, more enthusiastic by, about uh, Donald Trump uh, than older people. But let's dig into then what Britain might do in in responding to uh, 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 President Trump back in the White House. I'm joined now by uh, Kim Dow, Lord Darwick, who was the British ambassador to the U.S. from 2016 to 2019, resigned after his private criticisms of the Trump administration uh, were leaked. Morning to Kim. Morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, We've also got Sir Liam Fox, Conservative MP, uh, former Cabinet Minister and Great Atlanticist. Hi, Liam. Good morning. And in the studio with me, Sarah Elliott, Senior Advisor for the US-UK Special Relationship Unit at the Legato Institute. Sarah, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Liam Fox, uh, let's start with you. The... The... your assessment of the state of the relationship between uh, Britain and the US, and what Donald Trump back in the White House might mean, given that you know the world is looking even more uncertain, unsafe than it did when he left the White House, and his positions on things like potentially leaving NATO, withdrawing from the global stage, um, could 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 make that even more unstable.
7: Well, we're in an unusual position because we we have experience of a Trump White House and we now have experience of a Biden White House. So it's an unusual position for the UK that whatever happens, we've already got experience of this of either presidency. Uh, I don't think that in terms of the core relationship, it makes much difference. Our core relationship is built on in intelligence sharing and security. That's always been the basis of the so-called special relationship and that will remain so. Uh, we, we all quite often get um, candidates coming into the White House sceptical about that relationship. It goes right back to you know, George Bush and others. Um, uh, if you remember, after Ronald Reagan talked about the, Germany being uh, the natural partner of the United States in Europe, that usually is until we get to a military confrontation uh, when the United States find that Britain is the most reliable partner it has. Uh, that will have been reinforced uh, with the events in the last few days in the Red Sea, where, again, the United Kingdom's not only got the military capability, but the willingness to use it in support of international law and of the American-led operation. So there'll be lessons learned from that. Uh, When it comes to Iran, uh, we know that Donald Trump took a very tough line um, on Iran. And as we look at the situation in the region now, whether it's it's Hamas-funded and armed by Iran, or Hezbollah funded and armed by Iran, or the Houthis funded and armed by Iran, uh, a tough line will need to be taken, and, and, and Trump would do that. Um, uh, again, when you, you mentioned about NATO, now, I, I, at the time when Ronald, uh, uh, we had the first Trump administration, he was quite sceptical about NATO. And uh, you know, many of us thought that was more tactical than anything else. He gave a good rattling to our NATO partners who in turn actually increased their defense spending uh, in order to maintain the United States underwriting of the NATO project. So I think that uh, uh, some of these threats about Donald Trump not being keen on NATO I would take with a with a <laughs> pinch of salt and of course we, he may not be the, 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 the favorite to be the Republican candidate that doesn't necessarily mean he'll win the election. Uh, Kim Derek, is
1: there a, is actually when you go through the Donald Trump's uh, hardline approach on China and on Iran, as uh, uh, Liam was saying there, sometimes on well, international affairs, he's sort of been ahead of the curve a bit, hasn't he? If you take away the politics and the the language he uses and his eccentric approach to statecraft, actually, in terms of where where he's been, he's been ahead of the curve sometimes, has not he?
3: Well,
8: I think that's a bit of a stretch, to be honest. Um, uh, I think that I mean I agree with everything that Liam says about the basis of the relationship being defence, security, intelligence, and that's going to continue and to be strong, whoever is in the White House. And uh, I recall that Trump had a poor relationship with Theresa May, but he still came to the UK to uh, to join in the US bombing uh, operation against uh, Syria against uh, Assad's forces, in, I think 2018. So Liam's absolutely right, the Americans will still come to us first and we are the most reliable ally there. But on Trump being ahead of the curve in international issues, well, I mean, just three points which, which would worry me about a, uh, a Trump return to the White House. One, uh, if you think we should act internationally on climate change, he will take America out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. I mean, he said that publicly, he did when he was in his first term, he'll do it again. Second, He says that he wants to stop American arms supplies to Ukraine. Now, he says that in the context of, I can solve this uh, thing in 24 hours. I can make them do a deal. Mm. You take that with a pinch of salt. You think that basically his idea is to say to Zelensky, no more arms supplies, go and do a deal with Putin, give up some territory if that's what it takes. I think that's quite a bad outcome for for NATO uh, and for the UK and would look like a failure. And the third point, very quickly, he said publicly he wants to impose a 10% tariff on all imports into America, not just imports from China, imports from everywhere. And he put tariffs on UK exports, some UK exports to America during his first term. I think he means this. He says it's the way he's going to solve America's trade deficit. And that's going to be profoundly disruptive to international trade and will lead to retaliation, at least from the EU and others, and a global trade war. So all of these things seem to me worryingly disruptive. So Liam's absolutely right. The basics of the relationship will be as strong as ever. But there will be some problems if Donald Trump gets back in the White House.
1: Um, I'll come to you in a moment, so I just want to ask Liam, because I I think Liam's got to go. Uh, Liam Fox, we've been talking um, already this morning about the impact of having these two elections going on at the same time. Does uh, having the UK election at the same time as the American election risk the Tory campaign being trumpified, that those around him will around Rishi Sunak will will will, will think that there's some some advantage to dialing things up to, to to Rishi Sunak being more like Donald Trump. Does, would that worry you?
7: No, I don't think it's a risk at all. I think only people in the media bubble in London. Uh, think that this is an issue uh, out there in the country voters really won't give a monkeys about but the what about Americans what about if Nigel election.
1: Farage is is talking up reform in the UK while campaigning with Donald Trump in the, in the US that's not a media bubble creation
7: well but I don't think that's a big issue I, I think that um, uh, the issue in the British election will be do you want to continue with a Conservative government that's making progress on our economy and has got us over the terrible bumps of the pandemic and the inflation of Ukraine or do you want to take a punt on a party with no plan and no experience? That would be the real choice in Britain. I don't think that Trump would be, but if I can just say what Kim's saying about about trade, um, we we didn't like the the steel tariffs applied by the Trump administration, although we did warn, and I remember having conversations with my opposite number, that putting a 25% steel tariff on would simply raise American domestic prices by 25%, which is exactly what happened. And the trade deficit didn't actually reduce in the first Trump administration, it went up. It was different by the end. It was much smaller with China, but it was more with elsewhere. Uh, You can't actually defy the laws uh, of economics. And if we thought that we didn't like that experience, the experience of the Biden administration with IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was Orwellian in in its title, uh, was an even more protectionist, even more uh, distortion-orientated bill, which has actually brought about a misallocation of global capital uh, and badly affected developing countries. So you've got this—you've got this trend towards protectionism and isolationism in the United States on, now, on both sides yeah, of the yeah. aisle.
1: Uh, Lynn Fox, thanks so much for that. Appreciate you joining us today. Um, so I want to ask you about the, the special relationship—is precisely the thing you're, you're talking about—and the prospect. I mean, clearly there is a real prospect. If you look at the polls, of Keir Starmer in Downing Street by the end of the year, and then soon after uh, Donald Trump back in the White House. Um, speaking to the uh, BBC Political Thinking podcast, Kit Starmer was talking about Donald Trump. He didn't sound overly enthusiastic about the prospect of working with Donald Trump. Should they both be elected? Let's take a listen. We have to make it work. I think that is um, where uh, any incoming Labour government would want to be. Um, the challenges in the world are too great. This relationship between the UK and the US has been such a strong relationship for so many years um, and an important special relationship that we have to make it work. Um, and that's my mindset. Um, so making it work doesn't sound like there's a huge amount of common ground there. So what, is, what So what are you looking at in terms of that special relationship? And, you know, Donald, Donald Trump and Keir Starber couldn't be further apart on lots of things.
6: Right. Um, well, thanks for having me on. And the... US UK special relationship unit is putting the heart of the Anglo-American relationship at the Legatum Institute and we are looking to strengthen the relationship through economic and national defense policy. Um, yeah, I mean listen, he Harris Starmer's right. You have to deal with your allies despite, you know, who is president or prime minister and I think that will continue. However, um you know, I think Labour who has had a very huge distaste for President Trump is going to have to be more difficult diplomatic. They're going to have to rise above the messaging and the phrase and the personal differences and look at what the UK and America have in common and focus on that. That may be difficult for their supporters who came out in droves when President Trump came here uh, on two occasions. So, you know, I hope that they can do so. Um, You know, Americans, you know, we get a bit miffed if we see our best ally being so disrespectful to our head of state. Um, and
1: so where do you think is the common ground? Where are the things, or, or the common, I uh, know, people? Are there, are there other people in Team Trump that David Lammy or Rachel Reeves could be trying? Yeah, you because know, we've heard a lot of, they've been taught, you know, the Labour Party have briefed endlessly about, oh, we're really getting in with Biden's lot. we've been to the White House. And you think, well, actually, literally by the time you get into office, they could be packing up and leaving. So is there, are there policies or personalities that they could find common ground?
6: Definitely. I mean, well, first off, I mean, Trump's economic advisor, uh, Lighthouser, is very much similar in line with Labour. They He loves tariffs. He wants the 10% tariff. So they actually, you may actually find a Labour and a more protectionist uh, Trump administration quite buddy-buddy on that's this stuff, which, yeah, which yeah. personally, um, and the Legatum Institute does not think benefits all people. Yeah. Uh, and that's
1: where know. Donald Trump being of the Republican Party, but quite left-wing and protectionist economically is interesting. interesting. Economically, exactly.
6: So that is a fight within the Republican Party that Trump brought in in 2016 that did not exist before. You know, it's a very interesting coalition. It's actually flipped. I mean, the party of big business are the Democrats now. The party of the union working man are the Republicans now. So and you know then you have the free trade aspect and you have people who you know want to drop consumer prices increase um you know trading relations and and goods and services across you know borders and and that's, that's so also within the republican party as well. The,
1: the policy is is there's, a, there's a policy lines. So Kim Dowick, in your uh, with your experience as a as a as a diplomat what would you be saying to an incoming Keir Starmer as prime minister about, or maybe even now, maybe this is a process which needs to start now, in terms of reaching out and trying to, you know, as well as being diplomatic in public, what should he be doing behind the scenes?
8: Yeah, this is um, this is difficult uh, because of the nature of the team around Trump, I think. But first of all, Keir Starling is absolutely right, as, he, as in that clip that you played, that he has to find a way of making it work. And um, that will mean holding your tongue on certain things. And, um, accepting things that 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 you don't like without making too much of a fuss about it because Trump is not the man who reacts well to criticism. But yes, you have to try to make it work. And I think you work from the bedrock of defense and intelligence security relationship and try and build from that. So uh you know what whatever we do together with America in that field is a sort of starting point. In terms of what you should be doing now, look, you have to be trying to build informal private contacts with the team around Trump. But it's different from the team that were around him in the twenty sixteen election, which was much more mainstream Republican. If you believe what I read about about the team he's now assembled, it's very it's very Trumpy. I mean, it's people who are true believers.
1: And S- 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 Kim, Sarah shaking her head. No? On Sarah. Uh, <laughs> well
6: actually I, I would I I would kind of disagree on the campaign front. Um, he actually has some very uh, professional, um, sophisticated campaigners this go around that he did not have before, which is part of the reason why he's doing so well. He's taking advantage of that. Um, what you will find is that when if he gets to the White House, he will no longer have the Jim Mattises of the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the establishment the, the, the around glo- him. The grown-ups, people yes. might say. Yeah, but yeah, he yeah. will still have people like Larry Kudlow, um, you know, Bob Lighthouser, um, Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State and Director of CIA under Trump, come back. These are serious people. Okay.
1: Sorry, Kip, go on.
8: Um, I was going to say, you build private links with the people who maybe, as uh, I've just been told, will be... Um, will be very uh, uh, accessible. You have to be very careful how you do it because if news of that gets out, it looks like you're picking winners before the election has been held. So you have to keep them private and discreet. Um, and, you know, it's it's, it's going to be more, more difficult than perhaps people imagine once it gets into office because there will be things said and done that we profoundly disagree with, for example, on climate change. Mm. But build where you can Disagree as politely as possible where you can. Um, try and discourage them uh, from uh, being protectionist on trade. Try and build uh, up that wing of the... support that wing of the Republican Party. that are still free traders. Um, but it's going to be an uh, interesting and
1: challenging time. <laughs> uh, just just finally then, actually, is probably a question to both of you. How much of a problem is Nigel Farage in that, in normal times... You wouldn't have a prominent British politician with the ear of the U.S. president, basically slagging off both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. That whoever is there is going. Donald Trump is going to have his world, his view of Britain shaped by someone who doesn't like either of them. And I just what, is that, do you think that's a problem, sir, for the special relationship? I mean, whether or not you agree with you know what it is, the the want to say.
6: I think Trump has really shown to be his own person and he's kind of impulsive and reflexive that way. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I, again, I think on economic policy, they may have a lot in yeah, common. Yeah, it's, inter-
1: it's really interesting point. What do you think, Kim? Is Nigel Farage a menace? Um, I think he
8: can be, but I think that I think he will, he will continue to have access to Donald Trump. But I, I rather agree we shouldn't overstate his influence on this. I mean, I remember Trump saying in his first meeting with Theresa May, look, Nigel Farage is a friend of mine but
1: I uh, focus on the people in power. And that was when, Mm -hmm. you you were in the room when when she first went? Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, Kim, always good to speak to you. Kim Darroch, Lord Darroch, former uh, British ambassador to the US. And uh, Sarah Elliott from the Legatum Institute's uh, special relation, US-UK special relationship unit. And obviously plenty more on the race for the White House in the coming months here on Politics Without the Boring Bits. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly. it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel,
1: founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.